the sun is shining and all of my favorite plant friends are popping up right now. Speaking of plants, what are you growing this year? Do you know? Do you know what kind of medicine will be in your garden? Or are you still trying to figure it out? Totally okay if you're still trying to figure it out. We're all growing and learning on this journey, right? But if you want some help, I do have a family medicine garden guides. It's basically 10 essential herbs that I feel like every mom needs to know and grow in their yard. I give you some growing tips and ways that you can use it as medicine, and it's totally free. So if you want that, I'm going to pop a link in the show notes here for you to grab it and give Get your hands digging in the dirt and growing incredible medicine for you and your family. Hello and welcome to the Herbalist Path, a podcast where you'll discover how to make your own herbal remedies at home so that you can take better care of yourself, better care of your family, and better care of our planet. I'm Mel. I'm a clinical herbalist, environmental educator, and mountain living mama with this crazy passion for teaching more mamas and their little loves how to use plants as medicine in a safe, effective, and tasty way so that there can be an herbalist in every home again. It's an absolute honor to have you on the journey down the herbalist path with me so that together, we can make herbalism. Hashtag spread like wildflowers. You are in for a treat with this conversation I had with one of my greatest teachers, Ms. Chanchal Cabrera, who's a medical herbalist that specializes in integrative oncology. She is brilliant. She is the founder of Ennis Free Garden up in the Vancouver, British Islands. And she is a magnificent teacher, healer, educator. And we had some great conversations around cancer and life style and dietary choices in this world and how if we just shift some of those, maybe the 40% cancer rate in humans would go down. So we really talked about a lot in there. Chanchal shares so many golden nuggets. I know you are going to dig this conversation. So enjoy. Thank you guys so much for tuning in to another episode on The Herbalist Path. Today's guest, it's such an honor to have here. It's Miss Chanchal Cabrera. She's one of my teachers from long ago when I was studying clinical herbalism, and she's always had this incredible impact on me, on my herbal journey, and she is incredibly brilliant. She is a medical herbalist specializing in the field of oncology, and she is so wise. She runs the Innis Free Farm up on Vancouver Island in BC. I believe that's where you are. And she's also the author of a really incredible new book. I'm so excited to share with you. I hope you guys go out and grab it. It's Holistic Cancer Care. And um, anytime somebody reaches out to me with advice and wisdom on cancer care, I send them to Chanchal right away. So it's an honor to have you on the show. So thank you so much for being here. 
Oh, thank you for um, inviting me to be on the show. That sounds like a big pair of shoes you just built for me to step into there. <laughs> <laughs> I think you've been wearing the shoes for quite a while, but that could be hard to recognize when you're just in the shoes. You don't uh, always see it. So, um, yeah, you're somebody I've always really, really looked up to and admired. And you, again, really did make a profound impact on me in my earlier years of studying herbalism. So I am so grateful that this book is out and it's there for everybody. You know, not everybody can have access to you and your beautiful farm and your garden and be up on that island. So at least we can get a piece of your wisdom and knowledge there. But I'm really curious, uh, you have been in this field for quite some time, and I really would love to take a step back a few decades or so to young Chanchal and just where you got started on your herbal medicine journey. I'd love to hear about that. Yeah, I'm happy to talk about that. Um, um, before we went live recording here, you and I commented on our respective bookshelves, and I see behind you the Medical Herbalism book by David Hoffman. And David Hoffman was my door into herbal medicine. So I was uh, brought up on an organic farm in West Wales, mm -hmm. back before it was called organic, when it was still just pesticide-free. And my parents were part of that sort of back-to-the-land hippie movement in the 70s, trying to be self-sufficient on a small acreage. And David Hoffman lived nearby. And when my father became ill, he consulted with David. And David at the time was a new grad from herbal medicine school and just getting himself started. And he was very gracious to come out to our property and walk the land and show my dad some of the herbs he could pick for himself, notably Meadowsweet, which my father uh, continued to pick every year for himself for over 40 years. And then... Um, David told me years later that dad took them aside and said, you know, my, my daughter, she's 14 and she's kind of getting interested in herbs, but I think it might be the wrong herbs, you know? <laughs> and so could you, you know, set us straight? So David allowed me to go backstage in his dispensary, see him pouring, help him pouring some of the tinctures, um, looking, you know, walking the land with him, looking at the plants. And it just uh, awakened me to the medicinal value. I already love plants. I have scrapbooks full of dried pressed flowers with the Latin names that I've looked up. And I was clearly plant oriented, but David made me realize that this is more than just flowers. It's more than just sort of intellectual exercise of botany. And I was 14. I didn't know that I could or would be a herbalist. And then I left school at 18 and I went to live in India for a couple of years. And I worked part of that time in an orphanage um, and in a TB clinic with Tibetan refugees. And um, in the TB clinic, they were using natural medicines, Tibetan medicines, and um, getting uh, seroconversions, which I've later learned is supposed to be possible. Um, but they were apparently, you know, curing TB with herbs. And so somewhere about two years in, I had one of the sort of epiphany moments, like, why am I, um, I was actually on a, beautiful beach in Sri Lanka, bored. And I remember so clearly thinking, I've got more to offer the world. Why am I sitting on a beach in Sri Lanka with a bunch of stoners? You know, like, why don't I go back <laughs> to school and do something useful? So back I went to the UK and found my way to football medicine school. And back then, early 80s, there was only one really 
serious herbal medicine school in the UK. It happened to be the school that David Hoffman had trained at, although David was ahead of the of the um, classroom component. He did a correspondence program. But I went in and did four years of herbal medicine school full-time in England, graduated in 1987, and I've been in practice ever since. Wow, so that's David. Is- <laughs> that is such a cool story. Like I ask this question often and how fun to hear about it originating from like, you know, between you and David, many of my very, very impactful teachers and people really bringing the importance of herbal medicine to the forefront for for this world. So I'm so grateful that Epiphany happened for you so you could continue on and share this wisdom with so many and, and help heal so many in such beautiful ways. One of the things I like to talk about is making herbalism spread like wildflowers. And I thought of that before we hit record on this episode. I was talking about 2020 when we had to evacu- evacuate due to fires. And at that time, I had my product line and I had a, a tea called Respiratory Rescue. And so I gave pounds of it to the firefighters as a big thank you. And um, at that moment, I was like, oh, we need herbalism to spread like wildflowers instead of these wildfires that are spreading. So that's a, a side story. But your story is really, really cool. And um I'm glad you ditched the stoners and went for, for all the yeah, other great was a good choice. It was definitely yeah. a good choice. <laughs> not that there's not incredibly powerful medicine within that plant, but it, there's a big difference between the recreational use and the medicinal sure use. So how did you get into the world of, and, and really specializing in the world of cancer care and herbal medicine? That's big. It is a... A slightly unusual avenue to have landed in. Um, I know that for many years in clinical practice, I didn't really even take cancer patients because I felt that it was too big. It was too scary that drugs are so big. What could the herbs possibly do that the drugs don't do? I felt pretty helpless and almost hopeless around it. And then I was 15 years in clinical practice. I had a very busy practice, four days a week, you know, 10 to 12 patients a day, um, pretty solid. And it was great. I was definitely helping people. Herbs were definitely helping people. But I actually reached a point um, where I got bored. That is, although it was gratifying to see people get better, I no longer felt like I was learning much from it. I was doing a lot of effective, um, actually pretty much primary care. Some of my patients um, came to me, you know, instead of going to the doctor, although I always encouraged them to have a GP on hand. But I was dealing with asthma and eczema and menopause and arthritis and all the run-of-the-mill things that we all deal with in clinical practice. And it was gratifying to see people get better. And I did have shops and a product line and all these other avenues of delivering herbs to the world. But I found that I, as a practitioner, was no longer learning enough. And I, in my business and in my clinic, I was too busy to be studying. I actually couldn't do it all. So I took a leave of absence and I enrolled myself in a Master of Science degree in herbal medicine in the University of Wales. And I was in the first cohort that went through. Um, subsequently, a number of our other um, well-known herbalists, um, Daniel Gagnon, Matthew Wood, Christine Dennis, there are quite a number of other North American herbalists that took that program. 
But when I went through in the first cohort, they basically enrolled us and then we sat down and they said, what do you want your curriculum to look like? And you know, it wasn't quite that loose because it had been accredited by the University of Wales, but it was a, um, a, a, di- a self-directed learning program. So I did all this, the required courses. We had to do, you know, statistics and all kinds of, of, of not very herbal stuff, actually, um, and ethics and jurisprudence and all kinds of things that pertain to clinical practice but weren't directly about herbs. And then we come around to starting to choose our thesis. And I did not know what that was going to be. I was sort of casting around for some ideas. And I was at that time actually um, – working in a managerial capacity with Donnie Yance in his clinic. So Donnie is, of course, a very brilliant herbalist. But back then, he um, was so busy with his client care that the business end of the practice was not being well attended to. (laughs) And so he hired me literally as a management consultant to go in and help to set up systems and policies and procedures and paperwork in his office. So I was working quite closely with Donnie and uh, discussing with him about my master's that I was about to be starting and what would it look like. And he said, well, I really want some research done in my clinical work. I feel like I'm getting incredible results here and somebody needs to be tracking it and figuring out what's going on. So how about if I hire you to do research two days a week? You can work in the clinic a couple of days a week. And um, basically as an apprentice to him, and then I use that research for your master's. And that's exactly what I did. So after 15 years of clinical practice, I went back and apprenticed myself for master. And uh, Donnie continues to be a great teacher for me. He is very brilliant. He mm-hmm. has not got the academic credentials that some people seem to need in order to take a practitioner seriously. But I have to give Donnie credit for giving me not just a skill set, but a level of confidence in the herbal medicine. Not confidence in myself, but confidence in the herbs to be able to do something quite impressive and dramatic. And I would never suggest that herbal medicine cures cancer. That's not at all what we're talking about. But as a collaborative (laughs) discipline in a team approach, there is so much that herbal medicine can do to facilitate this journey for people to, no matter what they're doing with conventional medical care, whether they're in full chemotherapy or finished with chemo or not doing chemo or wherever they are in their journey, the herbs have something to offer. And sometimes it's the very foundational, you know, the adaptogens and building some kidney function and supporting the heart. And other times it's right in there using herb to augment or amplify a specific chemo drug at a specific receptor. We go right through that range of approaches in my clinical practice. So I, um, I graduated from the master's program in 2003 and have pretty much made my focus. Oh, wow. That's a long time. It's 20 years. Isn't it? Goodness. <laughs> um, that I've been pretty much focused now in oncology. I absolutely have an open practice. I see all sorts of people with all sorts of conditions, but I will say that one of the interesting things that's happened to me over the years with working with such difficult condition as cancer is it's opened my eyes to how much herbal medicine has to offer in all kinds of complex cases. So I absolutely work with a wide array array of conditions, but I tend to get 
almost all referrals from practitioners who've reached their limit. So mm-hmm. my cases tend to be very complicated cases um, where they are lots of moving parts, lots of drugs. I've got patients on anti rejection medication after transplants who are, you know, who now have cancer. And, you know, it's very, very tricky. I do lots, lots of research on behalf of each patient. So a 90-minute first intake interview with me equates to about another three hours of work. Absolutely. Because I take every drug that they're using and I cross-reference it against every herb that I want to use to see if there's any known, not just known interactions, but any plausible pathways where interactions may occur because if they're not known it doesn't mean they're not happening it means that nobody's noticed or tracked or asked Mm -hmm. so i'm often the one saying your drugs are clearing through this mechanism therefore this herb is safe because it doesn't go through that mechanism or maybe it's not so safe or it's going to induce that clearance enzyme therefore you may need to adjust the drug dose go talk to your doctor about that you know so it's very much about that navigating through their individualized medical journey in collaboration with other healthcare professionals i'm not licensed to practice primary care and nor do i practice primary care i'm very very clear about that i actually turned away a patient recently a young woman with a very obvious breast cancer but she had elected not see a doctor or have a biopsy of it. And I declined that case. I said, I'm not prepared to be to have that level of responsibility. Obviously, this is cancer. We can see what's going on. But until you know what kind, exactly what kind of breast cancer and exactly what stage and grade and have a monitoring plan in place, I can't be responsible for that. So mm-hmm. I actually turned that case away because I didn't feel like she was willing to work with me. She mm-hmm. wanted to do her journey and have me sort of on the side of that. I'm like, no, if you want herbal medicine, then we're going to do it properly. And properly means collaborative with other healthcare take a quick pause to show some love and gratitude to our sponsors of the Herbalist Path podcast, who make this show possible for me and possible for you too. So here it goes. I love this time of year. It's spring, the sun is shining, and all of our beautiful plant friends are popping up. It's amazing. Unless, of course, you're one of the millions of people who suffer from seasonal allergies. You know, the itchy, watery eyes, the sneezing and wheezing that's straight miserable. Thankfully, there are some amazing herbs that can help you with all of that, just like the herbs inside of Kick-Ask Allergy from Wish Garden Herbs, one of my absolute favorite herbal companies out there. Kick-Ask Allergy, yes, I said ask without the K at the end. Anyways, this formula has yerbasanta, nettles, echinacea for that immune support, and orange peels, all which come together to help dry up those excessive mucosal secretions. Yep, I'm talking about the sniffles and the stuffy nose, the watery eyes, and all that jazz. 
This blend also acts as a great expectorant and can help ease the swelling and inflammation in those mucosal tissues. It is a top go-to for seasonal allergies. And get this, they combine all those beautiful herbs with glycerin, so it actually tastes pretty darn good. Or should I say, it tastes kick-ass, without the K at the end. (laughs) Anyways, if allergy season is miserable for you, and you want a natural remedy that actually works for those itchy eyes and being all sneezy and wheezy, you have got to check out Wish Garden Herbs Kick-Ask Allergy. And for those of you with the little kiddos, no sweat. They've got a kick it allergy too. And you pregnant mamas, you don't have to suffer either. They've got a kick-ass allergy formula just for you. So head over to wishgardenherbs.com or check out the link in the show notes and go grab yourself some kick-ass allergy so you can enjoy spring again. I think a lot of people, especially right now, come with that kind of approach that that young lady may have had because they think, oh, gosh, I'm going to take herbs because they're natural. And I now don't trust the Western medical system, which is a brilliant system. It's a system that can save lives. Yes, it's also a corrupt and pretty yucky system. But in a case like cancer, you need that system to integrate with those herbs. So I I often share this with people like, hey, herbs are not an instant fix pill. We're trained to think that they are. People will often come to me as I'm sure they may or to you, but or maybe you're just past that level, but often saying, hey, Mel, I have XYZ issue. What herb do I take? And I'm just like, well, I don't answer that on on social media because it is a 90 minute intake. I want to know all about you. And that does take another three hours of research, as you said. So it can be much more complex. And just listening to your story of how you got into the world of oncology and, um, you know, learning with and for Donnie is another one of my teachers and I have his books on my shelves as well. And uh, I actually applied for a job with him right after I closed my product line, but I didn't get it. Um, I was close, but (laughs) it all happens for a reason. Um, Just listening to your story as one of the people that has inspired me so much on this journey. And you've obviously got a few years ahead of me. It's beautiful to hear because I'm like, oh, I resonate with that. Like, I want to learn more. I want to keep learning and keep learning and keep learning. And each one of those cases that you get, you get to learn more because you're doing more research. So um, absolutely brilliant, the work that you do. And I want to just step back to, gosh, I don't know if we could call it basics, but just step back to cancer. I think that everybody knows of cancer, right? they know somebody who has been affected by cancer in their lives. But what is cancer? What is it? Well, okay. That's a loaded question, I know. But as much as we could shorten it, you know. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right that um, probably everybody listening to this has been touched by cancer in their own life or their friends or their family or their loved ones or somebody in their community, because it's currently estimated that 40% of us are going to have a cancer diagnosis in our lifetime. And that's current, but it's going up. 
So, you know, it used to be 30%. Now it's 40%. And so that's a pretty high statistic. So it's very rare individual who's going to get away without having some exposure to this diagnosis, either themselves or somebody close to them. So, yes, people are aware of the um, prevalence of cancer. I think a lot of people are not yet aware of how much they can do to help themselves, not only, of course, with treatment under, you know, care of a herbalist, et cetera, but well before that with, um, with prevention. Mm-hmm. So, you know, yes, 40% of us are likely to get a cancer diagnosis in our lifetime, but the National Cancer Institute, which is a pretty mainstream conservative organization, they estimate that 65% of all cancers are preventable through diet and lifestyle. Yeah, let's talk about that. <laughs> so why are we not spending 65% of our cancer care budget on prevention? That's my question. Mm-hmm. Um, Canada's, I don't know the US, I imagine it's not very different, but we spend about less than 1% of the of the annual budget and healthcare is spent on prevention. And that includes things like quit smoking campaigns and um, get active campaigns and even mammograms, which weirdly are considered prevention. I don't really get how that works. It's like, no, that's an early diagnosis. But anyways, we as a society have lost the plot, as far as I'm concerned, we are um, the the medical literature that I read. I'm I'm, I'm quite. I, I spend a lot of time reading very mainstream medical literature because that's what my patients are dealing with. That's what their doctors are reading. I want to know what they're thinking and saying. So I try to um, to keep myself abreast of the current medical thoughts, especially around cancer. And right now, there's a lot of talk about things like ultra-processed foods, and uh, sucralose, which is a synthetic sugar that is now known to cause DNA mutations in gut lining cells. And of course, colorectal cancer is a very rapidly increasing cancer right now. And so, so there are many things in our society that are actively contributing to cancer, quite apart from things like airborne pollution and smoking and but the, the things that we choose to put in or on our bodies or in our homes are contributing significantly. So when you say, what is cancer? Um, I think we need to take even a bigger question, which is, where the hell did we go wrong? Right. Like, why are we as a, as, a, as a species so far removed from any kind of natural rhythm or natural lifestyle. And I don't mean, you know, eating granola and, and, you know, living in the bush, but just eating your, you know, of course, the National Cancer Institute says we should have 10 servings of fruit and veg a day. I mean, I know I struggle to do that. So I'm sure most of our patients struggle, but five a day, wouldn't that be a good goal? And, you know, there's lip service paid to that, but it's not emphasized. So your schools still have vending machines. School lunches are a travesty of ill health on a plate. Hospitals have fast food franchises in the hospitals. What (laughs) is this about? Why do we need to be dealing with cancer 
we should be dealing with lifestyle. We should be dealing with healthy habits from infancy, from childhood, from the get-go. We should be teaching kids to cook before they leave high school. We should be serving. I mean, I live in a small town and it's an agricultural-based community. So we have fantastic farms here. We have um, almost 100 certified organic farms in our community. And they got together, many of those farmers, and they organized school lunch programs. So many of our primary schools now have a school lunch program where the food is coming from the local farms. It's all fresh. It's not all vegetarian. There's meat as well because we have meat farms here too. But it's grass-fed meat. It's naturally raised animals. It's, and in many cases, children are involved with visiting the farms, with even preparing some of the foods. So this, to me, is what we should be doing to treat cancer. We shouldn't have to treat as much cancer as we do, we should be working at a much more simplistic level, much more basic level, which after all isn't just about cancer, is it? It's about heart mm. disease, it's about diabetes, it's about mental health. Now we know 90% of your serotonin is manufactured by your gut flora. So your mood is literally governed by your bowels. And so, you know, gut instincts and gut feelings are very real. So if we're eating the average North American 152 pounds of refined sugar per person per year. That's right, 152 pounds. Um, <laughs> what's that doing to your microbiome? Why do we have this epidemic of mental health? Is it because we're so disassociated from nature, I believe, and I know you're a, uh, have been a wilderness guide, I think you would agree that disassociation from nature itself is a big part of pathology, but with that comes lack of understanding of what natural means in your personal life. So how do you bring yourself back to um, proper sleep habits, better stress management, exercise and physical activity and diet? And to me, that's where health is beginning. And the rest of it is, um, you know, we, we should be putting ourselves out of business by doing health care, not sickness care. Uh, we don't have a healthcare system in America or in Canada. We have sickness care, mm -hmm. and that is flat wrong. So in my book, that's where I start. Yes, I end up with very specific pathways of individual constituents. And what I've now reframed, I call my work now um, uh, orthomolecular herbalism. <laughs> so we know what orthomolecular nutrition, where you take this kind of of B vitamin or this type of lipoic acid for this reason in this pathway. But the herbs can be that explicit as well. The herbs can be that precise. And I certainly go into a lot of that in my book. At the back of the book, which is more practitioner focus, but the front of the book, which is intended to be a bit more accessible to the patient, is all about let's just get you healthy and mm -hmm. then let's talk about cancer. Because yeah. after all, if you cure cancer by whatever means, drugs, surgeries, whatever it does that gets you through that crisis, now what? How <laughs> do you go on for the next 10, 20, 30 years after your cancer diagnosis and stay well? And I think that's a really interesting question because many people come through a cancer journey and are profoundly ill at the end of it. They may not have active cancer in their body, but they have 
damaged their kidneys and liver from the chemo. They've damaged their bone marrow from the chemo. They might have burned out their gut lining, compromised their taste and swallowing and all those things that then lead them to make not great choices for their own general health in the future. And then they're still at risk of heart disease, diabetes, depression, and of course of cancer either coming back or a new cancer coming. So to my way of thinking, we've got to, we herbalists, but also we as a, as a nation have mm-hmm. really profoundly lost our way in what Absolutely. is and how to achieve health and how to maintain health. It should not be taking high-end, expensive, specialized herbal medicines for treating cancer. That should be the last resort. And it really should be focused on healthy lifestyles from the get-go. And herbalists have a great role to play there. But also, uh, moms have a great role to play there. Teachers have a great role to play there. Gosh, the government could have a great role to play there. Wouldn't that be glorious if we could get the government involved? (laughs) So I've got a bit of a rant going, I think, here. I'll stop at that point because we could go on for a while. Oh, for so long. And everything that you were saying, I'm like, gosh, I wish I could just blast this part of this podcast episode on level 20 of one to 10 volume for the whole world to hear because it's so true. And this is one of the things I bring up to a lot of my students and other people like our school lunch and our hospitals are feeding directly into the problem. It is a whole sick care system from the food system to the healthcare system. This yeah. is why you are still in business. Like this is this is sad and and gross and we know it. Like don't people know this or am I just fortunate to have learned from someone like you? Like it's a question Mel. And you know, I actually think a lot of people do know. Um It's just hard. But it there there is a I mean there's a societal disconnect isn't there between what mm-hmm. we know is best or better and what we're actually able to access, afford, or find in our communities. That I just wrote a blog post for my website about food deserts and food swamps. And, you know, a food desert, I think quite a few of us now understand that's an area of the community where there's very, very poor or very few food choices. But a food swamp is a little bit of a newer concept, which is where there's plenty of food available. It just happens to be really poor quality. Right. But I call it food-like stuff. Food-like stuff. And so this is actually a, um, this is partly uh, complicated, at least, let's say, by by inequalities in our society. So, of course, if you could buy whole beans and whole grains and fresh vegetables, you're probably going to save money to some extent. But it costs money to, you have to buy, you're buying in bulk. You need a vehicle to get to the shops. You need to be able to bring it home. You need to store it. It takes gas to cook those beans. Well, if you don't have money to put on your gas bill, then actually buying a prepared ready meal that you can microwave is actually going to save you money because you're not having to spend the money on the gas bill and you don't have to go so far to get it. And if you have to travel far and you don't have a vehicle, then you're on transit. Is there even transit? I don't have a driver's license. So I'm super aware of transit. 
or lack thereof. When I chose to move to the countryside, I had to go house hunting for a place that had access to transit because that's critical for my well-being. I need to be able to get around in my town. Um, so for people that are of marginal income, marginal education, immigrants, etc., they are not able to access good food, even if they know about it. Yeah. And so this is a societal problem. This is a cultural problem. This isn't a problem of us not having information. It's a problem of us not acting on that information in a way that's equitable and accessible for everybody. Yeah. And that is a whole different problem. It really is. And as you were speaking about those demographics of people that don't have as much access to it, I think that's it's even much larger than that. And there also becomes the point like as a mother and somebody who's aware of all of this, it becomes very challenging to find the time to prepare those foods, yes. you know, to make them palatable. So our children aren't like, ew, because somewhere along the line, our children have been exposed to the addictive food-like stuffs yeah. that maybe we didn't intend for them to get exposed to, or we didn't know any better. And I think it also goes back to like the 40s and the 50s and the 60s, when everybody was so excited about this convenience food. Wow, fast food restaurants. Wow, microwave dinners. Look how quick this is. Like my mom's generation. She tries to do well, but she doesn't get it because she was raised on that. Like, we need this instant fix, this satisfaction, this level of convenience. And it goes back to what you were saying. Like, if we could all reconnect with nature as a big hole, like nature and how it heals us, nature and how you can grow your food and you can grow your medicine and and you can step outside and take that depressed mood and step outside for five minutes and come back feeling 90% better. At least that works for me. I know it works for a lot of other people. I've suggested such things too as well. So gosh, I could I could rant on with this. <laughs> no, one of the things that I find quite interesting in, in terms of how we've veered off from nature is that in if you read around the topic of the evolution of eating we there's actually a theory they haven't found the gene set but there's a theory called the thrifty gene and the thrifty gene theory su suggests that in nature an animal will always seek out the highest calorie return on investment so there is more nutritional value for an an for a predator animal to hunt down prey than to go and chew on some leaves. They will always chew on the ripest fruit, not the sour fruit. They will always go for the ripest grain, not the, not the unripe grain. There's, wherever the calories are more dense, that is the desirable food in nature, in, animal, in the animal world. So we have evolved from that with this predilection for seeking out the highest calorie return we can get on the lowest effort. Less mm. calories burned, more calories eaten. That's what mm. nature designed us to do because that's what animals need to do for their survival. Now, for us, the supermarket is where we go to hunt for food. And so we are instinctively drawn to the sweet, calorie-dense 
fatty, calorie-dense foods, not to the vegetables and the whole grains and the things that take a lot more effort, not just to prepare, but more effort to eat and digest. And this is actually genetically programmed into us to crave sweet stuff. So Michael Pollan talks about this quite a bit in his work, including in The Omnivore's Dilemma or in Food Matters, some of his his previous books, um, about the thrifty gene that is driving us as a species to crave the foods that we, foods in inverted commas, that Mm -hmm. we've made to satisfy that innate urge. And um, so it isn't just about you don't have enough willpower or you're a bad person because you're choosing the chocolate bar. There's actually a genetic drive in that. So in order to change that, we have to do some pretty serious societal change, not just about educating people, because after all, as we've already discussed, a lot of people know better than what they're Mm -hmm. actually doing. And I I will speak for myself. I could speak for you. I'm sure we don't (laughs) always make the best choices ourselves. Um, so, so, and we know better, but there's still this urge for the sweet treat or the quick fix. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it does take, I think, a government, uh, sort of ep- effort to change the availability of those foods, to make them more accessible. And, um, and the other thing that I think has been very interesting in, uh, research today around food choices is that because we have allowed ourselves to build up this unbelievable sugar intake. I mean, I did, when I did herb school in the 80s, I did my graduating paper on diet and disease. And I learned at the time, so that was 1986, I guess, that the average North American or British person I was in the UK, um, was eating about 120 pounds of refined sugar per person per year. It's now more than 30 pounds more than that in 30 some years. And at the, at the turn of the, um, 20th century, at about 1900, it was about five pounds per person per year. So we're gaining a pound or two of sugar intake a year on average right now in the last 120 or so years. And what that has done is, apart from, of course, causing diabetes and, you know, cardiovascular disease and all these things, it's actually changed our microbiome in such a way that we now have chronic nationwide dysbiosis. And we have bacteria that crave sugar. So they're constantly sending chemical messages to the brain, feed me, feed me. And it's very, very hard to override that. We are a product of our gut flora, and they are sending a message to our brain all the time that they want sugar. And if that sugar is really readily available and it's cheaper than the healthier food and we've corrupted our taste buds to the point that we prefer it, then that's what we eat. So that all sounds a little bit doom and gloom, like, oh, my gosh, how do we get over all of that? But, you know, it's like that old thing, how do you eat an elephant is one bite at a time. You know, for us in clinical practices, we start with ourselves and our families and showing by example. And then we start teaching and we start telling our patients and 
the root of the word doctor is the same as the root of the word teacher. We are educators in our clinical practices, so we teach our patients how to do this better. And it's very slow, and it's one person at a time. And we're talking to the elite who can afford to come for private health care with a herbalist that's not on insurance and all those things. So it is drops in the ocean, but the ocean is made up of many drops. And so everyone counts. And that's what I have to hold in my mind all the time when I see this seemingly insurmountable hill that we as herbalists are trying to climb. It's mm -hmm. like you just put one foot in front of the other and that's how you get to the top. Mm. All so beautifully said. And I just want to reflect back a moment because Obviously, I could have a gigantic yes to everything you just said, but along with our microflora just saying, hey, give me more sugar, give me more sugar and those chemical messages messages and you walk into the grocery store, there's also the people that are being paid to create beautiful packaging and to formulate the food-like stuff to be even more addictive. So it's like, it's a struggle for sure, um, but it can be done. And, and that is beautiful. I love the analogy of the drops in the ocean. We can just keep putting more drops in there. So that is incredible and, and great. Um, it's it's a it's a mountain to climb and we can all talk stories about mountains to climb um but a worthwhile one for sure so i do want to just touch a little bit back on some of the things in your book and cancer and cancer care and how herbal medicine can be complementary for somebody going through cancer care and and you know i'm sure you'll you'll touch on this because you already began to with the woman that you had to turn away because she wouldn't collaborate beyond wanting just your natural instant fix. So how does herbalism play into this cancer care world? Mm -hmm. Well, first, let me, let me um, clarify that particular person has in fact elected to go into medical care and get the information she needs so that we can work together. I didn't require her to do chemo or do anything in the system. I merely required her to find out what she was dealing with mm -hmm. so that we could actually have eyes open, not blindfolded as we go into treatment. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there, I would say that there is never really a place of herbal medicine doesn't have something to offer. So I have worked with patients from um before they got a diagnosis when they just had a suspicion all the way through to end of life care and there is a role for herbs in all of that and you know as a herbalist one of the things that especially working in the cancer field one of the things you have to come to terms with is that not everybody is going to do well not everybody is going to make it through mm -hmm. and so then you have to look at well, what is the role of herbs there? And sometimes the role of herbs is to help somebody to die better, by which I do not mean giving them herbs to hasten. I mean helping them to have more mental clarity, to have less pain, less um, collateral damage from the conventional treatments, to give them more peace or more sense of autonomy. Um, Canada and I think Oregon also um, enlightened enough um, governments to have medical assistance in dying. And Canada has recently agreed to have advanced, um, advanced, um, 
remember the exact word they use, but where you can advance um, intention, where you can say, I know that this is going to be happening at some point in the future. And if I get to a place where I can't uh, speak or make my wishes known, I advance directive where they can say, when I get to this point, that's when I want to call it. You know, but they may not be able to speak at that point. So, so to me, that's a compassionate thing for somebody to be allowed to choose their own time and place and set and setting for their passing. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes I can help people at that point with herbs to keep them calm, herbs to help with some of the grief, herbs to support the family. Mm-hmm. So I do a lot of bereavement coaching and supporting around passing over. Um, and I do not see that as a failure of herbal medicine at all. After all, it's, you know, was it Benjamin Franklin who said the only two certainties in life are death and taxes? <laughs> I think so, I yeah. Benjamin Franklin I might be misquoting. But, you know, it is going to happen to everybody, mm-hmm. no matter how much you love them. Uh, that isn't going to do it. And so how do we then navigate that journey with grace and beauty and compassion and care and the least trauma to all parties? So herbal medicine has a place right across that spectrum, whether you are helping somebody to not get cancer, whether you're helping them through their surgery, through their chemo, through their radiation, through not doing those things for whatever reasons, um, or now, of course, with the new immunotherapies, very exciting drugs, very um, effective drugs, but still a lot of side effects. And then uh, eventually, at some point in the journey for everybody, there will be an end point, and whether it's from cancer or something else. And so how do we then um, honor that process? Because as a, as a people, we have tended to turn away, to hide away from death dying, put people into facilities. We don't have to be with them in a home, in our home, while they're dying. You know, they're mostly hooked up to big machines and all those kind of drama and bringing people back from the brink. And you know, 80% of your healthcare costs are spent in the last six months of your life and on average. And so the the denial of death has also allowed us to become very fearful of it and to um, to therefore, as herbalists, not really have a good skill set for how to support someone who's going through that. And this came up, this came up for me quite early on in my herbal um, oncology practice when a very very close friend of mine developed cervical cancer. And cervical cancer is really tough because, first of all, it doesn't respond to most chemotherapies or conventional treatments. And it really gets that bad because women today get pap smears, get diagnosed early, and it's very treatable at that early stage. So we don't actually see an awful lot of cervical cancer in North America today. Um, other countries, it's a little bit different, but because of regular pap smears, it's not that common. So I had a very dear friend, very, very dear friend who had an abnormal pap smear and done nothing about it, not done follow up. And four years later, she was diagnosed with full blown cervical cancer. And, um, I had just finished up my program with Donnie and my master's and was just starting up as a, as a sort of cancer specialist. So I came in all guns blazing let's do this let's do that have you done the other have you read about this you know and she just stopped me one day and you know for about a month she let me go on at her like that and then she stopped me one day and she said you know what you don't understand she said i'm dying 
I'm like, no, 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 we, we haven't done this or that. And she said, no, you don't understand. She said, I'm ready. And I'm like, but you're only 52. And she said, I know that. But I've been a broken woman all my life. She had a long history of abuse. She'd lost a son. She'd had all kinds of drama and trauma. And she said, I'm actually done. I'm actually ready to go. Mm-hmm. And it was such a big lesson for me that when the patient is ready, our job is not to fight that. Our job is not to say, but, but, have you tried this? Have you thought about the other? It's actually to say, that's your choice. I'm honoring your choice. How can I help you to go through this journey in the best way? And that is what we did with her in the end. Mm-hmm. Myself and another close friend of the therapist, we held her hands while she navigated that pathway mm-hmm. until the very end and held her as she died. And, and it was incredibly difficult as a healer to allow someone to make that choice in full mental capacity, a young 52-year-old, beautiful woman that we just thought had such a life ahead of her and she didn't want it. And to honor that choice was a really interesting journey for me. It made me very, it was very humbling. Um, yeah. And it made me really rethink my role as a herbalist. My role as a herbalist is not to tell people what to do. My role as a herbalist is to support them to do what's best for them. And Whatever. what works works within their life circumstances. Yeah, that is a great story. Thank you so much for sharing it. It, it makes me feel good because over the years in running my apothecary and having friends reach out to me where they're like, someone I love has cancer or I love has cancer. I always tell them about you. I tell them about Donnie. And then I give herbs to support the nervous system to just help calm and and support the emotions through that kind of really challenge, challenging time in life, but inevitable time in life. So um, what a lesson to learn, though, when you're just like, yes, I know all these amazing healing herbs. Let's fight it. Oh, wait. Yeah, this is coming for all of us. And and I can support you in another way. So, um, gosh, Chanchal, it's been such an honor to chat with you. You are brilliant and amazing. I uh, said before we hit publish on this or hit record for this podcast that I've always wanted to come and study even more with you up on your farm in BC and haven't had the opportunity to, but good golly, does this, <laughs> this conversation makes me want to even more. Um, but if somebody is out there listening to this show and they're like, wow, yes, how do I reach you? How can I talk to Chanchal? How can I get her book? How can these people find you? Um, so there's a number of avenues. I have a website, of course, just my name, chanchalcabrera.com, and the book is available on the website. But I will say, honestly, if you're in the U.S., probably better to go through Amazon because otherwise you're paying shipping from Canada. You can also go directly to the uh, publisher. Can I ask you if your book is on bookshop.org yet? I don't think it's on Bookshop. I don't know that one. It might be. It's a, a woman-owned company okay. that supports local independent bookshops. Yeah, it probably should be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's to the publisher, which is Storybooks, S-T-O-R-E-Y. Um, so certainly the book is available that way. Um, there is also a couple of uh, learning opportunities for people if they're interested. 
I do run an internship here on my farm, which is residential. I'm just finishing up for the season now, but people come for anywhere from four weeks to four months and stay with me. And we work 25 hours a week in the gardens. We do a range of different classes. I I kind of adjusted according to the group I have. So if it's this summer, it's been all advanced students. We've been doing clinical case reviews. Sometimes it's a bit more beginner. It just depends on, on the year. Um, but certainly interning with me in um, on my property. And I actually run, it's not just a herb farm, it's a botanical garden. So we're open to the public and we do a lot of public outreach. And we're one of the five registered botanic gardens in our province. And the other way that people can learn from me if they wish, if they're more of the beginner level, just getting started with herbs or more of a community herbalist kind of style, then I would suggest that they go through the shift network because the Shift Network has just hosted a seven-part series that I was teaching that sort of follows the book, actually. It's the first part of the book in classroom format. So they're um, 90-minute classes, seven of them. And that is available indefinitely on the Shift Network. So they can just Google my name at Shift, and they'll find that series, and it's still available to register into um, and will remain open for registration indefinitely. So that's a really good entry point for people if they want to learn more about oncology care um, for themselves and their family and their community. And if there are practitioners listening to this show and they would like to get a bit more, then I will be starting up in the new year an advanced series that will be in person and online um, it'll be live streamed from the in-person classroom. And that will be um, probably six days over a stretch of time of advanced oncology care for clinical herbalists. Mm. Um, and so that's going to be a lot more for practitioners. Beautiful. I listened to all of those and I'm like, may I please? Like, how can I get it so my family can just hang out while I'm studying on your farm and they can just hang out up around BC? I'm sure they'd love it. Um, one of these days I will make it happen. But thank you so much for your time. I know you have more things to do with your day. So it has been an absolute honor to have you on the show. And I can't wait to share it with people. Yeah, a great pleasure. Thank you so much. I'm glad we were able to make date work. I know we had a few missteps along the way to get to this date. So I appreciate your patience. And I'm glad we were able to. Me too. Thank you so much. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you so much for tuning into another episode of The Herbalist Path. Being on this journey with you is absolutely incredible. If you dig this episode, please leave me a review on your favorite podcast player and share it with your friends so that together we can make herbalism hashtag spread like wildflowers. On another note, I must mention that while I know you're getting some good info here, it's important to remember that this podcast is purely for entertainment and educational purposes and is not intended to be a substitute for medical treatment. While the information in this podcast is absolutely relevant, herbs work differently for each person and each condition. That's why I recommend you work with a qualified practitioner, whether that be another 
herbalist, a naturopath, or your doctor. So thank you again. I am truly honored that you're tuning into these episodes and on the path with me to make sure that there's an herbalist in every home again. Don't forget to share this episode with your friends so that we can make herbalism. Hashtag spread like wildflowers. I wanted to take a quick pause to show some love and gratitude to our sponsors of the Herbalist Path podcast, who make this show possible for me and possible for you too. So here it goes. Medicinal mushrooms are all the rage these days, if you didn't know already. And with great reason, because they are powerful medicine that can improve your health and your life in so many different ways when they're well-made. Yeah, it's true. There's a lot of stuff on the market that isn't going to be so effective. And that's why you need to find a brand that you can actually trust. For me, that brand is Whole Sun Wellness. And this is the creation of a brilliant woman and fellow mama, Jamie Bonfiglio. She's an international mushroom educator that has been working in the medicinal mushroom industry for years. And this is when she saw firsthand how many other companies take shortcuts when it comes to their products. And Jamie wasn't having it. She set out to build her company the right way. Whole Sun Wellness is here to raise the industry standards so those crap mushrooms on the market aren't getting into your body or your family's body. Whole Sun Wellness is the first company to test and report nutritional facts for all of their extracts. They go beyond industry standards every step of the way, from sourcing to extraction and final testing. And as the owners of the largest medicinal mushroom farm in the United States, Whole Sun Wellness is taking control of their supply chain for the highest quality and absolute full transparency. They're even the first company to include pure mycelium extract in every single product. So when you're thinking of getting medicinal mushrooms for you and your family, Whole Sun Wellness is exactly the ones you want. Also, be sure to check out their new Mycolites. These are the world's first dissolvable electrolyte tablets. They're featuring functional mushroom extracts that'll give you more energy, more stamina, and recovery as well. And who couldn't use all of that? The other thing is, they are these adorable little mushroom-shaped tablets, and they come in like a little Altoids box, but way cooler than Altoids because they're Mycolites. Anyways, head to wholesunwellness.com to grab yourself some mycolites and all of the other functional medicinal mushrooms that you and your family need. And of course, you can grab that link right here in the show notes now. 